Um, I'm going to ask again if you would turn to Luke chapter 9, and um, I'm going to read uh, verses 57 to 62, so we'll reread the first two verses together, but I also want to read those final um, four verses uh, as well. We'll be looking at those uh, this morning. Luke chapter 9, uh, beginning at verse uh, 57, and it reads, As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord. But first, permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Praise the Lord for his uh, wonderful, wonderful word. Uh, brothers and sisters, you may have uh, heard uh, of the song, uh, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. Right? That song is attributed to uh, Leslie Tucker. And the first stanza goes, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Like this song suggests, uh, this passage is about the uneasy sacrifice and priority and unwavering commitment to follow Jesus Christ. Jesus, the passage says, is on a path. He's on the road. He's on the way. And the, the exact location in Luke 9 is, is not stated. A parallel account we find in Matthew chapter 8, verses 19 through 22. And in that passage, it is suggested that Jesus is in Galilee. Though Luke doesn't state the exact location, when you look back at verse 51, it says that Jesus was determined to go to Jerusalem. So contextually, Luke's focus is on the cross, and the destination is Jerusalem. And this passage centers on the, the stipulations for following Jesus as his disciple. In, in fact, the word follow is mentioned three times. In verses 57 and 59 and 61, twice by two individuals and once by Jesus himself. 
And again, it's about following Jesus Christ as his disciple. Right. And and at this time within the Jewish culture, uh, it was understood what a disciple meant. A disciple meant to be a student or a learner or a pupil of a teacher or a rabbi to come under a rabbi's tutelage so that one would be able to teach the Torah. But when Jesus arrives, when he spoke about following him, right, he intensifies and amplifies its meaning. It's like he inaugurates a new era of discipleship. This is discipleship according to Jesus Christ. And discipleship thus assumes a radically new meaning than his listeners were accustomed to. So with that context, we come to verses 57 to 62, and we read about Jesus's interaction with three would-be disciples. We don't know um, ultimately if they ended up following Jesus, but what Jesus does is he reveals three highly instructive truths about following him as his disciple. And and like many of his teachings, right, these truths, uh, these are truths for unbelievers, for unbelievers to know and to heed in order to be his disciple. And, And it's instructive also, though, for us as believers, Okay, as we assess and as we deepen our resolve to follow Jesus Christ so that we are further equipped and prepared to instruct unbelievers to follow him. So let's look at these three truths that are revealed in this passage. And the first truth I want us to see, brothers and sisters, is that. Following Jesus Christ is not a promise of earthly comfort. Following Jesus Christ is not a promise of earthly comfort. Look at verse 57 again. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go, right? So they're going along the road. They're going along the way. And remember again, from Luke's perspective, Luke's Luke's focus is on the cross, right? And so on the way, on the road, as they traveled, someone spoke to Jesus. This is the first of three would-be disciples of Christ. And who is this person? Well, according to Matthew chapter 8, verse 19, It's a scribe. Scribes were among the members of the Sanhedrin. Remember, the Sanhedrin is the Jewish Supreme Court, the high council. Remember, the the, the scribes were considered the expert interpreters uh, of the law. They occupied the Sanhedrin as well, and they were among Jesus' fierce opponents. And in Matthew 8, verse 19, it states that the scribe identified Jesus as teacher, right? Because in Jewish culture, to be a disciple, to be a student, a pupil, or a learner was to come under the tutelage of a teacher. 
under the tutelage of a rabbi. So he said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go, you go, right? This person, this person makes a vocal commitment to follow Jesus Christ. Perhaps he, he, he heard about all the things that Jesus said. He, maybe he observed the miracles that Jesus performed and he is making a vocal commitment to follow Jesus. And he says, I will follow you Wherever you go, right? I'll follow you everywhere and anywhere you go. He's ready. He's committed. He's resolved to be a pupil, a learner of Jesus Christ. But you know what? It's presumptuous. It's presumptuous because he doesn't understand the full scope and truth about what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And look how Jesus responds in verse 58. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head, right? Jesus told him, the beasts have it better than I do in terms of where they reside and where they dwell, right? He told them that the foxes of the field and the birds of the sky have resting places. They have places where they can go and find protection and shelter places where they can go in and out and frequent, but it's not the case with the son of man. Jesus is the son of man, right? We see that terminology applied to Jesus in the gospels over 70 different times. Jesus identified himself as the son of man on multitude of occasions. On the road, it refers to himself as the man. He's, he is, it speaks of his humanity, but it also speaks of his humility. Jesus Christ is the son of man. Je also, the term son of man is associated with his deity, with his deity. He is the son of man who is to be rejected. Excuse me, he is the one, the son of man who possesses divine authority, including the authority on earth to forgive sins and as the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the son of man. But it's also associated with his suffering, with his suffering. He is the son of man who he said is going to be rejected. He's going to suffer many things. He's going to be delivered into the hands of men and killed and rise on the third day. He is the suffering servant, the one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus Christ is the son of man. But it's also associated with his messiahship, right? Jesus Christ uniquely identifies himself as the son of man who will rule. And you remember Perhaps that vision of Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, where it says the son of man will appear on the clouds of heaven. And that pictures his deity and his authority. He will receive dominion and glory and, and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages might serve him. And his dominion will be an everlasting dominion. And it will not pass away and his kingdom will not be destroyed. This is the son of man, right? He's going to fulfill this when he returns to judge on earth and to establish his kingdom, his millennial kingdom reign on earth. 
He said in the regeneration, the son of man will sit on his glorious throne. He told the high priest of the Sanhedrin, they will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. That's a prophecy of deity. The son of man is going to return on the clouds of heaven, both to judge and to rule. So brothers and sisters, grasp this. The son of man who was the omniscient and eternal God, and yet in his incarnation was the suffering servant, possessing authority on earth, endowed to him by the father, the heir of all things, whose dominion will not end and who will possess an everlasting kingdom to rule over every language and people and nation on earth, voluntarily deprived himself of a basic necessity that even his creation enjoyed. The beasts of the field and the birds of the air possessed what the creator did not. Yes, at times he stayed with Peter's mother-in-law. He stayed with Mary and Martha, but he had no permanent home. He lacked a roof over his head. He was an itinerant preacher. He was a traveler on the go. He was homeless. You remember at his birth, there was no place. There was no room for him in the inn. You recall in Luke 4, Luke chapter 4, his own hometown of Nazareth expelled him. They tried to throw him off of a cliff. You see, earlier in this chapter, Luke 9, the Samaritans wouldn't receive him or his disciples. In Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 to 34, when he cast out a legion of demons from a man, the city begged him to leave. Overall, he wasn't received by the world. He was an outcast in the eyes of many. The son of man had no place to lay his head. And yet, day by day, moment by moment, he entrusted himself and he submitted to the father throughout the course of his ministry. And his disciples had to be willing to do the same. It, 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 right? It's unfathomable that the, that the creator lacked a place to lay his head, dis, denying himself of the basic provisions that he gave to his own creation. And so he, he tells this person, he tells this person, this, this first would-be disciple, this is the reality. If you're going to follow me, you'll have to share in my homelessness. You'll have to share in my way of life. One without luxury, one without comfort, and one without ease. You're going to have to be my disciple under my conditions, right? And this is going to include rejection, the potential of danger, no permanent place to rest your head. Why? Because following Jesus Christ is not a promise of earthly comfort. This is a life of self-sacrifice and self-denial on the go with no place to lay your head. Leave, be willing to leave behind your past comforts. This is discipleship according to Jesus. I like how John MacArthur put it. He said, you want to follow me? We're not going to the Ritz-Carlton Hotel. 
There is no promise of ease. There's no guarantee of comfort, no right to a life of luxury. There's no promise of living on easy street. This is one of the several rebukes, by the way, to the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel preachers. Now, we shouldn't interpret this to mean that following Jesus demands that we must be homeless or that material poverty is a sign of spiritual maturity. Furthermore, humanly speaking, Jesus's ministry was dangerous to all, though, who aligned themselves with Christ. Right. We shouldn't expect to be in luxury or comfort or ease for following Jesus, right? Why should we, as Jesus' disciples, expect to have it better than Christ? Daniel Bach, in his commentary, he writes, a disciple of Jesus must realize that following him means living as a stranger in the world because a choice for Jesus is a choice rejected by many in the world. Many will not follow Jesus and will reject his disciples. And yet, brothers and sisters, we have to, we have to remember that despite what we might lack in this world materially, Spiritually in Christ, we're rich, right? We're rich. This is what Jesus Christ told the church at Smyrna in Revelation chapter 2, verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. You are rich. We're rich, right? Because we possess every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, according to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. We possess the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The virtues of Christ. And our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the Apostle Paul wrote. That's what the Apostle Paul said in prison. So this world in its present state is not the disciples' home. So the brothers and sisters, this is brothers and sisters, this is discipleship according to Jesus Christ. You'll follow me wherever I go. Well, guess what? I'm going to the cross, so you better take up yours and follow me, or you can't be my disciple. So discipleship requires that following Jesus is not a promise of earthly comfort. Not only is following Jesus not a promise of earthly comfort, secondly, following Jesus means prioritizing his priorities. Following Jesus means prioritizing his priorities. Please look at verse 59. And he said to another, follow me. So unlike the first exchange, Jesus is now the initiator, right? In fact, when it comes to Jesus's brand of discipleship, he always initiates the call to follow him. He invites people to follow him on his terms. And he says to the person, follow me. That is, follow me as my disciple. What would Jesus have meant by following him, right? What did Jesus teach about Becoming his disciple. Well, let's go to the school of Jesus for a moment. One thing is that Jesus requires 
self-denial, a willingness and readiness to suffer even unto death for his sake, and that you commit to following Jesus daily for life, for life. So we're talking about the quality and the duration of discipleship. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23, it says this, and he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me, right? This is how our evangelism, by the way, is to be, right? It's indiscriminate, it's indiscriminate that is, it is to all, anyone, and it is without alteration. Also in the school of Jesus, he taught that an unwillingness to suffer for his sake and follow him, that disqualifies you from receiving him. Matthew 10, verse 38. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Those are the terms of discipleship according to Jesus Christ. A willingness to take up one's cross or you're disqualified, ineligible from following him. He also said that following him requires that you forsake and abandon a love affair with material possessions that prevent a wholehearted commitment to Christ. In, in Mark 10, verse 21, he told the rich young ruler, one thing you like, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Wow. Be willing to part with those things that are undermining your allegiance to Jesus Christ. One more thing. We'll acknowledge that Jesus taught in the school of discipleship is that you must cherish and treasure Jesus Christ above all people, including life and family, or you can't be his disciple. Luke 14, verse 26, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he can't be my disciple, right? You got to love Jesus Christ supremely more than that, which we naturally love most, which is life and family. All right. And this is just a sampling, just a sampling of what it means and what it necessitates to follow Jesus, right? And, and this, sur this surpassed the people's ideas of what it mean means to follow Jesus. In fact, frankly, brothers and sisters, this surpasses people's notions today about what it means to follow Jesus. Do you know that being a disciple of Jesus is synonymous with being a Christian? Remember in the books of, book of Acts, the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. We got to go back to school on just what it means to be a Christian. See, following Jesus is a consecrated life. When you commit to following Jesus, Jesus significantly reorients your life. By God's spirit, it's a new walk, Galatians 5.16. And by the spirit of God, you are permanently attached to Jesus, whereby the Holy Spirit 
enables you to adopt Christ's character, speak his words, imitate his conduct, embrace his thoughts, and obey his commands. Right? Being a disciple means being set apart from the world and devoted entirely to Christ and to God. And you know what that's going to do, brothers and sisters? That's going to invite opposition from the world, from the devil, and from the flesh. We go back to verse 59. So grasp the depth of what Jesus says and how he says it. First, he's not asking this person to follow him, okay? He's commanding him, right? It's an imperative. It's authoritative. As Messiah and Son of God, he possesses the authority and the right to demand a full-fledged commitment of discipleship. It's the highest and it's the most urgent invitation that anyone could receive. Secondly, his command is one of unceasing commitment. Jesus is commanding him to continually follow him. It's in the present tense. Keep on following me as a lifelong disciple. It's a lifetime commitment to follow Christ throughout all of your days. Thirdly, as we'll see, Jesus' command expects immediate compliance. He isn't issuing a command for this man or anybody today, for that matter, to obey when they feel like it or when it's convenient for them. No, the expectation of obedience is immediate. Jesus commands him to follow him now. You remember when Jesus called the first disciples, it says they immediately left everything to follow Jesus. Matthew 4.20, when Jesus told Peter and Andrew, follow me, it says immediately, without hesitation, they left their nets and followed Jesus. In that same chapter, he told James and John, the sons of Zebedee, to follow him. And it says immediately they left vocation and they left dad in the boat to follow Christ. Same thing with Levi, the tax collector, Mark 2.14. It says Levi immediately left his profitable and corrupt trade as a tax collector to follow Jesus. Right? Because, brothers and sisters, that's the expectation of discipleship. Okay? So when we proclaim the gospel, brothers and sisters, when we proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, We are also compelling people to follow Jesus now because of the immeasurable blessings of salvation demand an immediate response. Okay? We we don't evangelize giving people the impression that they have all the time in the world and they have the luxury of putting Jesus Christ on hold. That's not evangelism according to Christ. Fourthly, notice the restrictiveness of his command. He says, follow me, right? Chiefly, don't follow other teachers. Don't follow intuition, family, or friends. 
Above all, don't even follow your favorite preacher or theologian. He says, you follow me. Follow me. On multiple occasions, right, in speaking to unbelievers, you know, when I've spoken to the non-Christians, I'll, I'll evangelize, I'll give them the good news, and then I will say to them, will you repent and believe in Jesus Christ? Will you follow Jesus Christ? And I'll just wait. I'll just wait. Why would I tell the person, I've given you the gospel, okay, now go home and think about it amongst the myriad of other options you have in your life. Time and eternity is at stake. I remember teaching personal evangelism at a a Christian school, and I told the students, I said, okay, when you give the gospel, Ask the person that you're evangelizing, will you follow Jesus Christ and wait for a response? What? Yeah, that's evangelism according to Jesus. Well, how did this person respond? Look back at the, at the verse. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father, right? So the man responds with Lord, not in a saving way. He's not confessing Jesus as Lord and sovereign of creation. Neither is he acknowledging Jesus as God who is Lord. He is simply giving a title of honor and respect. But he tells Jesus, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. Allow me first primarily to go handle some family business. And it's not necessarily a, a, a uh, evil request, right? But he wants to go and bury his father. He wants to go and observe the burial rites and tradition for his deceased father or his father who perhaps is sick and on his deathbed and approaching death, right? And, and in Palestine, because of the, the hot climate, corpses would decay quickly. And so thus bodies needed to be buried immediately up to within 24 hours of death. And so burial could consist of wrapping the body in linens, placing them in a coffin, placing them perhaps in the ground or in the tomb. We're familiar with that uh, most uh, poignantly with the life of Christ, the burial of Jesus Christ. The body may have been placed in a shallow grave or a cave cut into a rock. The body may have been anointed with spices and perfume. And so what he wants to do is go observe the burial custom of his father or prepare for that burial custom, right? Because in the Jewish culture, right, it was um, the expectation was that uh, as a sign of honor that you give high regard to the burial activities of your deceased family. So he wants to go uh, observe the burial custom. Right? He wants to handle family priorities, right? He's suggesting really to the Messiah that family priorities take precedence over following you right now. Let me go first and handle family business, right? That would have been fine and acceptable were it not for the fact that this was King Jesus. This is the Messiah compelling him to follow him now. And how did Jesus respond? Look at verse 60. But Jesus said to him, allow the dead 
to bury their own dead. He's responded to the contrary. Allow the spiritually dead to bury their own physically dead. Right. He calls them dead. Right. Because he's pointing out their spiritual condition apart from God. Right. The, the spiritually dead are those who constitute the, 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 the community and family of those who rejected the call to discipleship. Right. You know, Ephesians chapter two, perhaps verses one and five, they're dead in their trespasses and sins. Colossians 2.13, they're dead in their transgressions. It's the opposite of being born again. Remember in Luke 15 and Jesus' story of the prodigal son, and the father spoke of his formerly lost son as one who was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. So Jesus says, Allow the spiritually lifeless and deceased to bury their own lifeless and deceased. They constitute the family of the dead. Let them attend to worldly matters. Let the spiritually dead dead folks manage that task. Let them handle that. That's secondary, right? Because following Jesus Christ takes a backseat to nothing, right? It's secondary to no one, to nothing, not even family customs, not even burying one's own father. Jesus isn't violating. He isn't nullifying the command in Exodus to honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged. But Jesus magnifies a, a greater priority priority, which is to follow him. And he says, let the dead bury the dead. I've got a more important assignment that takes precedent that you need to be concerned about. And it's connected to following me. So this is, this is a lesson for us today, brothers and sisters, and this is instructive for our communication to unbelievers. Okay. Following Jesus is the greatest and most pressing priority. Following Jesus Christ today and for the course of your life is the highest pursuit. There is no greater priority. Nothing surpasses it in importance, right? So my unbelieving friend, obey the command to Christ as his disciple. Follow him and follow him continually and follow him exclusively. Or you risk remaining dead in your sins and dying in your sins, as Jesus said in John 8, 24. Again, my brothers and sisters, this is evangelism. This is how evangelism goes, right? We, we, call pe- we, we proclaim the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We call people to repent of their sins and place their faith in Jesus Christ and to believe in him. And then we, com- we call them to follow Jesus Christ as a way of life. All right. And this is what true faith and repentance is going to produce, by the way. True faith and repentance is going to produce a walk of obedience. This is the evidence of trusting in Jesus Christ, right? And so today, you got people, right, who make all kinds of excuses. They try to postpone following Jesus Christ, right? They got all kinds of so-called priorities and things that take precedent over following Jesus, right? All kind of non-redemptive reasons saying, Lord, 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 permit me first to do such and such, right? What, you got something more important to do than the following Jesus Christ? 
I think not. Right. The, the, the creator of the world is supposed to wait until it's convenient for the creature? been given the greatest offer of your life to become Christ's disciples, and you've got something more pressing to do? You know what postponement means? Postponement means rejection in the eyes of God. Look again at verse 60. Literally, it's, but you, right? It's emphatic. But you go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Jesus tells him, you've got new marching orders. Following Jesus gives you a new set of priorities. Jesus says, go and announce everywhere the kingdom of God. Right? The kingdom of God refers to the, the sovereign rule and authority and universal reign of God. Right? His universal reign and authority and rule over the realm of salvation. So the, the kingdom of God was present in the person, words, and the works of Jesus Christ. But the kingdom of God was also near. It was imminent. It was impending. This is what Jesus said. And it was going to be fully realized and visible at the millennial reign of Jesus Christ when he establishes his kingdom on earth. And then in the eternal state, he's going to hand over the kingdom to the Father and all things will be, God will be all in all. And so he tells the person, go and announce God's kingdom in all assemblies and all gatherings. Let people know about the availability and the, the blessings of the kingdom. And in the mind of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, and this is important. In the mind of Jesus Christ, discipleship is inseparable from kingdom proclamation. Okay? Right? I mean, you look in chapter 10, he's going to instruct 70 or more disciples to go on a preaching and a healing mission to every city and place. Where, and, and, and along with healing, they were to say, the kingdom of God has come near you. And so today, with the resurrection and the ascension of Christ, what do we do now as believers? We proclaim the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection, and, and we call people to repent and to trust in him and to follow him so that they might become citizens of the kingdom. And, and today, in, case, in some cases, Christians think that there is somehow a distinction between following Jesus and gospel proclamation. Not in the mind of Jesus Christ. They are inseparable. They are inseparable. Proclaiming the gospel is following Jesus Christ. This is the priority, and it requires immediate compliance. Looking back at the passage, he says, the man says, let me first go and bury my my father. No, you don't have all the time in the world because you might be the one that they're burying next. 
Following Jesus Christ is a commitment to follow his ministry of kingdom proclamations, right? This is a foretaste to the Great Commission. What is he going to say at the end of Luke, of the Gospel of Luke in chapter 24? He's going to say repentance for the um, forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. This is a foretaste to that. Announce the gospel everywhere. Take the gospel near and far because a disciple of Christ is by definition a disciple maker. Say, who is the prime candidate? Who is the prime candidate for the gospel to to proclaim the gospel? (laughs) The one who just believed it and was saved by it. You don't need to wait and sign up for a training course. You don't need to wait and sign up for an evangelism workshop. Go out and everywhere and proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. Proclaim the good news that you received and were saved from. Bye. Yeah, I got I to gotta wait. And I can't come to church yet. I, I got to wait until I get my life together. Don't you understand? You can't get your life together apart from Jesus Christ. And you don't have all the time in the world. Your life is in God's hand. I used to tell people I spoke to that you're not even promised the next 10 seconds. In Fuel the Fire, author Charles S. Kelly Jr. writes, the responsibility of turning believers into witnesses is assumed by Jesus himself. He told his disciples that if they would follow him, he would make them become witnesses. Yes, brothers and sisters, following Jesus is not a promise of earthly comfort. And promising, excuse me, and following Jesus means prioritizing his priorities. And finally, what we take away from this passage is that following Jesus requires unwavering loyalty. Following Jesus requires unwavering loyalty. Look at verses 61 and 62. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. So here we have verse 61, another hopeful disciple. And he speaks to Jesus just like the first person. And there's a a verbal promise to follow Jesus. In the person's words, I will follow you, Lord. Right? Just like the previous address when referring to Jesus in the respectful, honorable way. And the man said, but first, right? But first, here we go. Permit me to say goodbye to those at home. Before I follow you first, let me go again, handle some family affairs. All right. And it's not necessarily a bad request, right? Because the person anticipates perhaps there's going to be a lengthy separation from family to follow Jesus, right? In fact, you don't have to turn here, but 
back in 1 Kings chapter 19, 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 19 to 21, uh, the prophet Elisha had a similar situation, right? In obedience to God, Elijah had appointed Elisha to succeed him as a prophet. And however, Elisha had requested to go and kiss his father and mother before following Elijah. And Elijah granted Elisha's request. Okay, so this is, this is good on face value. But unlike in the day of Elijah, here, Jesus the Messiah is present. This is not one of several prophets speaking to one another. This is the anointed prophet. This is the prophet of God, Jesus Christ. And, and, and the man perhaps unknowingly, right, it communicates to Jesus that, that going home to say bye takes precedence over following you right now. But here's the problem, right? If you sidestep the opportunity that Christ gives you to become his disciple when he gives it to you, then you risk forfeiting the opportunity forever. And this is such the case with non-believers today. Right? It, it, It just reflects a misunderstanding about the unswerving expectation that Jesus has for following him. Right? And, What's the risk of him going back home? Well, the risk of him going back home is that his family might impress upon him not to go. And the risk of him going home is he might be actually dissuaded from following Jesus. And Jesus says, no, look at his response. Verse 62, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God, right? Jesus, he uses an agricultural analogy. It's a proverbial saying, okay? It means you must plow ahead with eyes fixed forward in order to plow a straight furrow. What does that mean? (laughs) Right, a a plow was a large uh, agricultural instrument that fastened to one or more oxen and that was pulled, that pulled the plow. And as the oxen pulled the plow, it turned over the soil while it was being guided by the farmer, okay? And so as the farmer is guiding the plow and the oxen, the farmer couldn't be looking back while he's progressing ahead, right? All right, he's got to steady the course so that he plows straightly. That's an easy analogy I think we can understand. And so similarly with following Jesus, no one, no matter who they are, can follow Christ if they're torn between following Jesus and the life behind. That's Jesus' point. No person can follow Jesus if they're divided between pleasing Christ and pleasing people. You can't have a divided heart. You can't have torn loyalties. You can't be distracted. You, You must have a passionate focus on Jesus Christ and be committed to his cause. You must forget those things, to use the language of the Apostle Paul, forget those things which are behind spiritually and press on to those things which are ahead. You must be resolved to follow Jesus in obedience because Jesus desires and he deserves unswerving devotion to him. You can't look back, but you got to persevere in Christ. Progress in the faith or else risk falling away and revealing that you were not truly Jesus' disciple to begin with. 
Jesus says in verse 62 again, no one who is distracted, torn from following him is fit, is fit for the kingdom of God, right? Jesus says that that person is not suitable for God's kingdom. That person is not useful for the master. He or she cannot be of service to God in his kingdom. So if you're oscillating between following Jesus and other options, if you're nostalgic for the past, right, then you're not useful for God's service. You're not useful for the kingdom. And you're no use to the kingdom, the spiritual kingdom, which Christ rules over here on earth. And you will not enter the visible kingdom once it's fully realized in the future. The last stanza of Leslie Tucker's song ends with the question. Will you decide now to follow Jesus? Will you decide now to follow Jesus? Will you decide now? To follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. To my non-Christian friend, maybe you're here today or perhaps you'll be listening later. Will you decide to follow Jesus Christ? All right. Will you turn from your sins and place your faith and trust in him? Will you believe in him who was crucified for your sins and raised back to life on the third day and who is coming again, both to judge those who have rejected his call of discipleship and also to establish his millennial kingdom? Will you follow Jesus Christ now? Not later, not tomorrow. Will you follow him now? My friend, following Jesus is, is not a promise of earthly comfort, but the, the blessings and the rewards of following Jesus Christ are incomparable. Following Jesus means prioritizing his priorities, right? His priorities trump and surpass ours, but his priorities become your priorities along with that in infinite reward. Following Jesus requires unwavering commitment. It requires undivided devotion and faithfulness to God and to the Lord Jesus Christ, who never ceases to be faithful. So, brothers and sisters, this this passage is about the uneasy sacrifice, the priority, and the unwavering commitment of following Jesus. Jesus. Truths that you and I as believers must be reminded of, right? It's not just instructive for unbelievers. It's also instructive for you and for me as we assess our obedience and we deepen our resolve to follow Jesus Christ. So how are you? How are you in following Jesus Christ, right? right? And part of following Christ is of observing his command to disciple the nations, to disciple the nations, 
You become a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. By definition, you are now a disciple maker. All right? It includes proclaiming Jesus Christ, proclaiming the cross, proclaiming the resurrection to friends and to family members and to others, and to call them to repent and to trust in Jesus Christ and to follow him in a life of obedience. Does your evangelistic message entail a call to follow Christ? Are you calling sinners to follow King Jesus? His message, his message becomes our message. Again, as Charles S. Kelly Jr. writes, our involvement in evangelism is not a result of a certain personality type or spiritual gifts. The work of Jesus in our lives results in evangelistic outreach. The focus of the believer is to follow Christ. Spending time with him through Bible study, prayer, and doing as he commands. The result will be a witnessing life. May God help us to increase our resolve and our commitment to follow Jesus Christ. And may God use us as channels of gospel proclamation and calling unbelievers to follow Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this wonderful time in your word. Thank you for the reminder to the call to follow Jesus Christ. Uh, first, beginning with ourselves, Lord, we just pray by the spirit of Christ that you would help us to deepen and to increase our resolve to follow Jesus. And also, as that entails proclaiming the gospel and calling people to repent and to trust in Jesus and to call them to follow him. I pray if there's anyone here today who has not answered the call to follow Jesus, that you might save them today and you might use them in, in a mighty way to bring to bring other sinners to Jesus Christ and to call them to repent and to follow him. We bless your name and we thank you for our time together. In Jesus' name, amen.